Here we go, man. Yes, sir. Welcome to the Dr. Bundell Podcast. I am so excited to have someone I've become a huge fan of that, uh, that I think a lot of people have become fans of through uh, throughout this pandemic. And it's J.L. Coban, who does the most killer Trump impersonation, although you pretty much impersonate everybody. And uh, I've been dying to get, get in touch with you and get your podcast <laughs> for months. Um, so, man, thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to spend with us, man. Sure. No, my pleasure. I, I was, as we were talking before, um, I don't really use Instagram a lot until this whole thing happened. And I didn't realize I had like a hundred messages on Instagram waiting for me. And I saw yours and I said, Oh, this was, uh, this looked rude on my part, not replying for four months, but you know, here I am. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad we were able to connect and we were just talking about that. That that's something that happens all the time. I send tons of messages out and you know, sometimes months later folks are like, Oh yeah, they're, they're, sorry, man, I missed that one. Um, so <laughs> funny story. So one of my best friends in life, uh, went to Williams college, which I, you know, which you went to and early in the pandemic. Yes. 99. I think you're class of a one, right? Class of one, correct. So he he uh, he he was just sending some videos of you. You know, this is like when we're all all we were all doing was just sitting on our asses and watching like CNN or MSNBC or whatever we watch. And you know, there's all this Trump stuff. Mm-hmm. Trump was doing those press conferences every day, and he just he just started sending out videos of you. And I'd never seen you before, and they were like incredible. So all of us, there's like a group of us that are kind of on a shared text chain. We all were just like binging on your content, like waiting. For the next video to come. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I'm certainly not alone because I think like your Instagram, I'm mean, just on your Instagram alone, but I know you have a YouTube channel that's very popular, but it must have been nuts, right? Like you must have been just like, there must have been one video that went nuts viral and then all of a sudden you just blew up. Yes. No, there was a, vi- I remember when the NBA got canceled, I sent a video, I did a video that got like 18,000 views however twitter calculates views on twitter and i was like oh nice that was real good great thrilled two weeks later i did a couple more that none popped like that so i was like oh well i guess the buzz is gone i picked up 50 twitter followers that's good it didn't cost me anything and then on march 24th i posted a video it was the day that trump said he was going to bring back the economy by easter uh as it turns out uh that didn't happen and so i did a video just on all of that, just riffed a video for two minutes on that before leaving to walk my dog. And, you know, within like three days, it was in the millions. And it was very bizarre because I went from 4,000 Twitter followers that it had taken me, you know, a decade to accumulate. Uh, and that was the, and, and those were hard to come by. That That's road comedy, that's videos, that's doing everything you're supposed to as a comedian. And, you know, within a week, I was at 60,000 Twitter followers, and now I'm up to over 140. And yeah, it was it was overwhelming in a good way, but also in a way that felt like I just got, you know, seven years of my career that I thought I would have been on like the, the if things went normally, like any other career, it would have been a normal trajectory. Instead, it was like, we're going to stagnate your career for eight years. And then in the course of a month, you're going to be elevated to like 95% of where you thought you would have been. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was very grateful, uh, very overwhelming. Um, but you know, I guess it's good that I didn't, despite the fact that I had been very tempted several times to completely abandon my comedy pursuits. I guess it's good that I didn't. 
Would you say Twitter Twitter is your biggest platform? Is that the platform you resonate most on? Yeah, it is because um, I quit Facebook a couple of years ago simply because, and I'm, I, I, I jokingly said to people, I was like, I think maybe I was so frustrated with my comedy career that I felt like, well, if I'm not going to be a successful person, maybe I can be a good person. And I like dumped my, my Facebook account. I was like, I don't have to contribute to the destruction of democracy. Uh, so I sort of focused on Twitter and the Instagram, which is obviously owned by, uh, by Facebook. I, I had it for my podcast as Trump, but now that's become sort of the, the alternate home. Cause most people have one uh, Twitter or Instagram. I mean, there are a few people who only have Facebook, but you know, I basically can get most of the people I want between those two platforms. Um, so yeah, I'm on, I post the videos to Instagram also, cause you know, not everybody's on Twitter. Yeah, so, but yes, to answer your question in the longest way possible, Twitter is definitely the, the main, the main place. That's it. I literally just started using Twitter like a few months ago. I never even used it at all. You know, like Instagram, surprisingly TikTok is like my biggest platform. Oddly oh, enough. nice. Yeah. Well, that's the new, I mean, that's, it's always good to be big on the newest platform. Uh, I'm, I'm huge on Friendster, so you can tell where my career is going. Uh, no, but, but TikTok, I joined reluctantly just because, and not because I even have anything against it. I was just like, I'm 41. Uh, do I really want to join a new social media platform? Just, just to make sure I pick up a few fans here and there, you know, but that's, that's the way everything is working now. You just have to be everywhere and keep going for the next thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, a lot of the, the way I usually start have the podcast goes, like we start like way back and, you know, kind of bring us, bring us through the years. But you know, I think there's so much that you just said that I just want to touch on. So a big theme of my podcast is like the hustling grind and like, you know, all the behind the scenes work that goes on before someone really pops. And, um, yeah, I, I just been, my entire career is all behind the scenes grind at this point. <laughs> I, th I think that's everyone who makes it right. And, to, you know, in comedy or in, you know, even like acting or music. Sure. You know, it's, um, you know, so just, I'll, I'm going to sort of tell bits and pieces that I know. I know, you know, you, you went to Williams College, like an elite college. You know, you played basketball there. Um, it's an incredible school, you know, one of the top schools in the country. And then from there, you went to Georgetown Law School, which is an amazing law school. So obviously your career trajectory was, you know, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm sure your parents were very, you know, they wanted you to be, you know, some kind of professional. And there was some of that, sure. that like, you know, all right, I'm going to be a lawyer, but I still love comedy and you're in law school. I, 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 all this stuff is just from bios and different articles that you have out there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you did a, uh, there was like, a, it was like your second year in law school, like 2003 or something like that. And you did like, there was an open mic, Correct. And et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, you know, you, you obviously were a guy who I'm sure was always like the funny guy, you know, you were doing like in, high school impersonating teachers and, you know, college, you know, and, you know, something just inside you was like, okay, you know, I really want to take this more seriously. Was that the time? Like, was that when you were in law school that you're like, you know, now I'm really going to give it a serious go on the side, obviously while studying law? Sure. Law school is really the time where I just said, let me try. Um, I was not thinking I needed a hobby. The, the truth of it is, I went to law school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got into some good ones and I said, well, you know, this is very legitimate sounding. Unlike medicine, I always, I always tell people we'd be a better society and have more happy people if we treated law school like medical school. Not that it's as difficult, but if you had to be pre-law throughout college 
and then, you know, do rigorous sort of field work as a lawyer. Like by the end of that process, you would have weeded out everybody like me who's just like, I don't know, it seems cool in the movies. I got good enough grades and a LSAT score. Let's try it. Because you have a lot, a lot of disillusioned lawyers who it's it's sort of the it's the much, much easier path to professional legitimacy versus medicine. And if it was a lot like medicine, I can guarantee you I would have been like, oh, you know what? No. <laughs> And so for me, it was, okay, I got through law school, I'm going to be a lawyer, but law school was very um, depressing. There's no other way. You know, my personal experience, everybody has, finds it stressful. But for me, I think I was dealing with some depression. Uh, my grades were not great first year. I was uh, in a long distance relationship. Second year, I was living on my own. I, I had been living with a friend uh, first year. So all of that sort of... I didn't know how to describe it, but it was more like, well, I guess I'll skip classes today. I'll get out of bed around 11. Why, you know, no big deal. And I got into this real lethargy and it was trying, uh, it was going to a local bar show near my house uh, midway through second year of law school where it was a really fun show. I went with a buddy. We just had some beers. It was mostly, you know, no name, it was all no name comics at the time, though I do know a couple of them now who have some careers. And it was just a fun time. And it was the first time I even thought to myself, I'm like, huh, I'm funny. But I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if that could be a hobby, like something, because it was just such a fun experience going, it wasn't a comedy club show, there was something more organic, and relatable, because it was just a random bar show. And that's what got me going. And I tried it that summer after second year. I said, I'm going to try it this summer. That'll be my, my hobby for the summer, other than, you know, working during the summer. And I really liked it. And, you know, it grows from there. It starts as like a fun hobby, but then you get those, you either get friends complimenting you, you get strangers complimenting you. And all of a sudden it builds up this little bit of, I wouldn't say ego, but a buzz. It gives you a buzz for sure. Uh, like any drug. And now you want to get more of it. You go, okay, but how do I work the club now? Now I've done some cool shows at some bars, but I want to get on the, I want to work the club. I want to host at the club. I want to do a spot. And from there it snowballs until you reach a point like me where you're like 10 years in and you're like, I'm really good. I've worked really hard. I've plateaued. And it's how you fight through. I think that plateau and for me, I think spite helps as not that that's healthy, but having a sort of, I know I'm good, but if I quit a joke, I tell people, I say, if I quit comedy, I failed. But if I don't quit, I can only be failing. I haven't finished the failure process yet. So it becomes a thing of going, okay, little things. I don't know how I'm, I'm giving you a really broad uh, kind of synopsis, but it becomes a thing where comedy, if unless you, you blow up, you get little successes that just keep you in. So early in my career, I got a late night credit. And then it was like, okay, and then my career went stagnant. Then it's like, I finally got to work some clubs that I'd been dying to work and it was so fun. So you go, that's why I'm in this. Then I had a video go viral. All the while I'm putting out albums that aren't really selling that well, but I know they're good. Then I get hooked up with like, you know, a big podcast all on my own and et cetera, et cetera. But you're never breaking through until this year. The best two years I had financially in a 16, now 17 year career 
were the two years where half of my income came from comedy. Never enough to be like, oh, I'm quitting the job. I'm not doing any more part-time work or full-time work. I've made it. It was more like I make enough from comedy to make the flexibility in my life worth it, but I can't do anything other than it's just enough money to keep doing comedy, not enough money to go. I'm now a full-time comedian. So pick a part wherever, pick whatever spot you want to jump into along that journey. (laughs) I love all that. So there's a, there's a lot that you said there. So are you familiar with relentless? It's a, it's a book that, you know, Michael Jordan's trainer wrote. Um, His name is Tim Grover. He's, he's like, I'm I'm aware of his trainer. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the scenes guy with Jordan and kind of like the guy who like Dwayne Wade, a lot of like folks like tap into and, one of the things that yep. you like, you know, spite kind of inspires you like that, you know, like it keeps you going. What are the things that he mentions that you, like, it's, like there's being relentless, which you obviously are relentless in your pursuit of your career in comedy is you have to like reach into that dark place and kind of have a chip on your shoulder a little bit, you know, to, to motivate you. And it's okay to do that. You know, just what you said that just reminded me of that, that little part of, of the book. Um, yeah, so no, I def, I definitely have a chip on my so- shoulder and it's, but it's the funny thing is, uh, I've told people, like I, I speak in like sort of sometimes my own aphorisms, but I think they're true. I don't, I'm not trying to be, uh, cute with them, but I've told people when I look at my comedy career, I say a lot of people think comedians, you know, are messed up people that go in looking for attention. I look at my life and say, my life was pretty good. I think comedy messed me up and I had to then. I had to then fight through, like I volunteered for it. I wasn't drafted. I was just like, oh, life's good, but I'm a little bummed out in law school. I, I, it'd be nice to have a hobby. I wasn't going, I'm so funny, I must do comedy or, oh, I need this attention. If anything, it's the reverse. Like, I feel like I lost a lot of friends in comedy because you're prioritizing, you know, when you get out of law school, your friends are busy either starting families or, or going to happy hour and doing regular social things. And you're going, well, I get out of work at six and then I have to do the eight o'clock and the nine thirty open mics or else what am I pursuing comedy for? And year after year of that, you, you fall into this space where there's certain comedians that maybe didn't have normal lives and they find community in the standup world. Maybe they're not getting up for a nine to five the next morning. So they're, they're forming bonds and, and, and uh, relationships within comedy. And then you have people like me where it's like, well, I have friends and now I'm not seeing those friends, but you know what? That job is still calling me at 9am tomorrow. So I can't hang on a Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday night till midnight. Cause I gotta get home. So I'll, you know, so you end up sort of becoming, when you're there's there's I'm not pretending like I'm the only one who who's had this experience, but in this experience you end up isolating yourself by necessity because you're going to lose those friends who maybe don't understand or don't have the time to support what you're doing because they they have their own lives, but you also don't form as strong connections with the people in comedy because it's not your only life, and that's why it's so important for me to sort of say. I need to make it so that I can have one life and that can be, you know, and you know, that would be the choice I would like to make is stand up comedy, but I'm still, even now I'm exhausted because I'm still working for, for a law firm right now. And I've been just doing double duty this entire time. And I I know how jerky that sounds. I always say this, I say, um, I get it. I have two jobs and COVID is certainly not the time to be complaining 
talking about being overemployed. <laughs> but it's it's tiring because yeah. the law firm life is the security that I didn't have for a decade when I was just living month to month, never starving, but just sort of every month was a new month to meet, make pay the bills and try to grow your comedy career. Whereas now I know what it's like to have to be in that position. So the law firm gig is very stable and I'm not in a position where I trust comedy enough to ditch it. That said this year, I've been incredibly lucky and incredibly busy with comedy stuff. So it just may meant this year was going to be exhausting. And like I said, better to be exhausted with, with, with a lot more work than with what obviously a lot of people are dealing with now. Yeah, well, well said. You're making folks, the, the folks who are having tough days, you're making their days a lot lighter, though, with some of your stuff, which is which is. What and that's 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 funny when I when I hear that from people, it's I'm, I'm a, you know, until this year, I was a very cynical comedian. And I go, I make jokes, I don't try to make myself feel more important or seem more important. But, you know, you start uh, this year, I got a lot of messages from people that really were unnecessary. And that's why I know they were heartfelt where they're going, this is depressing. And like turning on your videos is fun and enjoyable and something that my friends or my family, like we, we can laugh about. So, yeah. you know, it made a cynical comedian go, okay, I'm never gonna do comedy to be, uh, funny is always gonna be the goal. I'm never gonna have, me I'm never gonna put message or sympathy first in my comedy, but knowing that it, it does mean a lot that people actually genuinely genuinely you know found it to be a relief from a lot of bad stuff yeah man um you're going back to your your law school days when you did that first mm -hmm. stand you know that kind of like took the plunge was it were your like friends like dude you got to do this you're so funny like you'd be great at doing this you know, you, you should give it a shot or was it more like you know like you were just always a funny guy and you're like you know just something from internally where you're like just you had to do it it, it goes back, honestly, there's one time with friends from college. Um, I was at the, it was like a bachelor, it wasn't a bachelorette party, but it was like a joint sort of family party for a friend's engagement. And I was holding court, not with the whole crowd, but just with our group of like six, just doing impressions and cracking jokes. But it was, it was the normal, almost like it could have been a cafeteria setting. It wasn't me getting up on a table and going, watch this. And a friend of mine, uh, Scott, I said, somebody said, you should do stand up. You should try stand up. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe. But I had never, I was a huge fan of stand up and it never entered my mind. I was just like, oh, being funny is the way to make friends. It's the way to make uh, women laugh. It's the way to cheer up your family. Like there was no like, oh, I can do this for real. And my friend Scott, I remember he said, well, if you do, I'll be at your first, I'll be at your first like club show. And of course, a year later, he, you know, less than a year later, he would end up driving, you know, from Philly to DC on a weeknight, just because just to honor that promise. Um, but yeah, that was the only time anybody ever told me I should. And it was just that seeing that show at the local bar, it just it made it relatable. Not that they weren't good, not that I looked at them, but, but when it's not Chris Rock on the stage, when it's a teacher who's moonlighting as a standup, it does make it more accessible. Not, that, not to say, oh, you're no, I could be better than you. It was more like, you're a regular guy and you're funny. I'm a regular guy and I'm funny. Maybe, maybe that could be something I could do. And that's basically how it started. But nobody, nobody gave me real encouragement other than that. But I did have 
uh, a friend and his brother came to my very first open mic. Uh, and, you know, which was nice to have that support. Because that, you know, once again, my friends always knew me as funny. Uh, so, of course, seeing you on stage doing it in a different setting is, is exciting for people's friends. Uh, until you do it too much and then your friends don't come to your shows even when you're good. <laughs> That's so funny. I actually used to, I, when I was in med school, actually, I always played guitar growing up. But when I was in med school, I started taking it like really, really seriously. Like I, you know, I wouldn't go to class very much and I'd have all this time like between exams. Like med school's all like, you know, chill, 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 study your like nuts, like all nighters, take a test and then chill for a little while. So I decided, okay, now's my time to learn how to study jazz, learn jazz guitar. So I got like super into it. And I started playing a lot in New York City when I was doing my residency. And like my first couple of gigs, my boys would come out, my friends would come out like, this is awesome. And then like by the end of it, they're like, oh, man, another fucking email from this guy. Like, he's another gig. <laughs> Take me off the email. You know, like. But what, no, that's, what's your that, initial? That's the circle of life in, in entertainment is they want to see the novelty. Even when you stink, they're just so excited to see you in that setting. And then there's this long lull that I went through where I'm like, oh, I was on TV and I'm really good. No, you, you don't want to go see it anymore. And now that I've gained some fame, there have been a lot more emails coming to me instead of me sending them. <laughs> so it'll be funny if, you know, friends come to a show, you know, 16 years apart where it's like, oh, okay, good. When I was struggling, I really could have used this, uh, the support. Now I want to save these tickets for strangers who might actually buy my albums. <laughs> hey, was your initial material like um, impression stuff? Like, do you remember what you did that first show? Um, the first show, all I remember, it would have been, it would have been uh, June 2003. And I do know that what I did for my first set was I remember I was so nervous that I said, oh, what if I get heckled? You know, you have all these mm -hmm. thoughts of the worst possible comedy experiences ever. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll memorize my five minute set over the course of two weeks so that even if I get booed and get rattled, I'll just hammer through the material just so I get through it, which is for any aspiring standups listening, that's a really bad way to do standup. You want it to feel a little more organic than that. But the only two things I remember, I think I had some jokes about Al Gore. I don't know why, but I think I had some jokes about Al Gore. I mean, I was in DC, so I knew politics might play a little better. The one joke I did, I do remember to this day, and it was my then girlfriend uh, kind of spotted it. There was a cab, we saw a cab go by, um, I guess that summer when she was visiting me, and it was, it said, arrive alive, was on the cab. It, sounds like a dumb joke it sounds needed but it said arrive alive like that was the name of the cab company and she said did you see that and i go yeah that's sort of setting the bar a little bit low isn't it and then that was like one of my first jokes where i was like oh arrive i saw a cab arrive alive isn't that setting the bar low you know like you get out and uh, you're like sir i'm you know i lost a limb you got in a horrific car crash well but technically you're still alive so that'll be 1050 it's like a lame joke but it was that i do remember that so i kind of treat that like my first joke it may not have technically been my first joke, but it's my first first set joke that I remember. So, ah, that's good, man. Um, <laughs> so you know, I know. So just kind of like hit some bullet points. Like, so sure. One of the things you said, like, you know, there was enough like small successes throughout like the last whatever 16, 17 years almost, I guess, right? Like, oh, it's been seventeen now, yeah. That like kept you in the game, and 
I think like fairly early on, like a few years in, you were on like one of the late night TV shows. Right? Craig Ferguson, yeah, late late show on CBS. What, did you do a stand up routine? Yes, on that? yeah, I cr- and I, I I really did crush that set. Um, it was just it was. Comics will tell horror stories of like, oh, you send your set and you'll have to submit it five, six times. They'll edit it. They took out one sentence from what I submitted and that was it. And I crushed that set. And, you know, that was the, that was the, then my career got into swing where my manager, uh, what happened was there was a writer's strike. And so the shows were shut down because they were going to have me back. They were going to schedule me for another appearance during the strike my man, the person managing me got fired. I had a manager for like four months. They fired him and I stayed with the agency because I'm new and I thought, well, you're the big agency. I'll stick with you. Um, they assigned me to somebody else who isn't really feeling me. They decide to let me go a few months later. Then the late, late show won't return my emails, which was weird because it was like, you know, I've been on the show. I'm not just some strangers. Like I'd really like to be on the show. I was like, you saw it. I was really good. So, you know, then I, I uh, spent the next few years parlaying that late light credit into some road work, um, but never, you know, then the savings went away. And then by 2013, it was time to, uh, you know, work part time so that I could keep doing comedy. So and you, that was like my life for six years. Were you not working on an attorney? Like, Sorry. Yep. After Craig Ferguson, were you? Not- no, I was. I was basically doing document review which is, or some people call it contract attorney work, which is basically you go to an agency and the large firms, it's always lar- mostly large firm work because they'll be like, okay, we have a case in three months. Corporation X is suing Corporation B. We need you know, a, a, a legion of available or low level attorneys who are willing to stare at emails and click buttons for the next three months. Um, so I did that for, you know, five years, I guess, four or five years, um, because it allowed me flexibility. Like my schedule would often be like, okay, I've booked three weeks of road work for July. So July is going to be a fun month where I basically go to the gym, write and do comedy. And then I have to get a job for August, September, August, or, you know, basically it became just a jigsaw puzzle in my life for the next six months, trying to make sure I had time to keep working on standup. I mean, I've put out six standup albums in a 15 year stretch. Um, which is like a headliner pace because I've always said I want to, I'm going to hold myself to what I think I'm capable of, which is headlining. And hopefully that'll happen now. But basically it was just part-time legal work for, from 2013 to, to, you know, mid 2019 until a full-time job just fell into my lap. And then I was like, I think I might quit comedy. I think I'm 40. I just got a full-time job that I'm, that these jobs aren't coming by with any regularity. So I need to snatch it up and you know, COVID hit. And then all of a sudden uh, that was the apocalyptic event that my career needed to <laughs> come back to life. <laughs> so I just, just to go back a little bit. So those six albums that you have, are those self-funded? Mm-hmm. Like do you? Yeah. All self-produced. I, I made like all self-funded. Um, one of the best decisions I made not to get too into the weeds, but I'll just leave it at a major comedy content producer early into their rise wanted to buy my early albums as part of their distribution network. And they were like, you know, with our platform, these albums will sell so much better. You've got to split the profits with us, but like we're, we have such exposure. 
and something in my, it was, it was actually my former management company had become a content company. And I just said, you guys didn't want to manage me, but you contact me two years later looking to get my content. And I said something, my instincts just told me this is off. What I believe they knew and would become, they knew streaming and satellite radio would become huge sources of revenue for, for music and you know, albums. And I think they wanted to build up their catalog so that they could have bragging rights and say, we have the largest catalog because then that's how you draw in bigger fish. But I would have been just, you know, a shrimp in their seafood platter that they could use for marketing, but they didn't care about my stuff just the way they didn't care, I'm sure for dozens of other artists. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep my stuff. So I produce those albums. They get good rotation at Sirius. The most money from 2015 to 20. 19 that I made as a comedian was not from clubs or album sales or private gigs or anything. It was from streaming. And I thought to myself, I was like, I trusted my instincts. And part of the reason I trusted is I said, I think I'm going to make it one day. Maybe I'm wrong, but I know I've got the chops. And man, if I ever make it, if I become a big time and I own all my albums and fans want to go back and buy, that's a hundred percent coming to me in every way. And I made a lot of, when I say a lot of money, I mean, if I made $36,000 in a year from comedy, $23,000 was from streaming. So it was, it was a lifeline. It was, it was like the reason I kept doing comedy is that I could validate it. There was a business validation. That's not a ton of money, but like if, for, a, for a good paying hobby, that's good money, you know? And it was enough to make me say, I'm glad I kept the rights to my stuff. I didn't fall for the, there's so many traps in arts in general, but in comedy, especially where it's like, oh, I can do that. Okay. I'll do that for free. I'll do that. Exposure. You get paid in exposure a lot. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I think this time I'm going to trust myself and not go the cheap way out for exposure. So that, you know, that streaming money was, was, uh, I, I, did I even answer the question or did I go on a tangent? No, you did. A self-produced, self-produced album. So yes, I'm, now I am very open to getting, to, to working with someone or doing a special with a bigger platform. Cause now it's, I've maxed out the kind of value of self-producing. Now I need somebody who can take me to that, that bigger level. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you hear about all these, you know, incredible musicians who like sold the rights to their music and just are like broke, you know. So I mean, it's it's great that you had that that foresight. Um, so stream, what is streaming exactly? Like Sirius would would play your album and then they pay you for it or something like that on their comedy. Yep, yep. I, I mean, I didn't even know. I I got a lot of rotation on Sirius for years, which was great, and I think it helped that I was putting out new content every like two years there'd be a new album and that might drag some other albums into, into rotation. Um, Pandora also, um, Spotify pays very poorly. Um, but you know, all those add up and, uh, unless you're Joe Rogan. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, that's why they can't pay musicians or comedians for plays because they're handing out nine figure deals to talent. So that's their business model is working for them. It seems so uh, it doesn't work for me, but that's okay. <laughs> so how did you negotiate though? Did you negotiate those deals yourself or do you contact them? Like, how does that even happen? Oh no. Well, sound exchange is a, is a platform that I've learned about 
several years ago, not a platform, but a, it's almost like a government. They're based in DC, but they basically keep track. You submit your albums and then you get paid. I don't even know what the rate is. You know, it's, but I just know that satellite radio pays a ton. If you can get good, good rotation in satellite radio, Pandora pays well relative to like Apple music and Spotify. Pandora seems to pay me the most of, of those platforms. Um, this sounds like a terrible lawyer, which maybe I am, but it was just basically, there is no deal to be negotiated there. I could deal, I could negotiate with Sirius if they decided I was hugely popular and a star they might buy me out or else not play my stuff because they don't want to hand that, you know, they don't want to hand me uh, $250,000 at the end of the year. So they may cut, like I knew this happened with a bigger comic where they basically said he got, he was getting so much in royalties. They, they wanted to cut a specific deal with him and he said no. And then they stopped playing his stuff. <laughs> so that's one way to stop paying somebody. Um, but I'm in this, I guess, sweet spot where I can just get uh I'm anonymous enough where my tens of thousands a year just keep floating through. Like this year, I don't know if somebody realized that I had blown up uh, with the videos, but I saw a huge spike from like May to uh, to September in my in in my uh, royalties, which was which was great. I have to assume it was something to do with that, but uh, yeah, that's that's a total mystery. I just know that they seem to pay pretty fairly. Like I, you know it's passive income. So as long as it's good, I see no reason to, to complain or rock the boat. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Um, you know, one of the sort of underlining underlying themes that I'm really getting is like this really incredible self-belief that you have, which is also like another, one of the themes of my podcast, like, you know, mm -hmm. like knowing that you're pr producing valuable content, you know, like you, I, you know, and you know, it's good. And you know, I'm a big believer that, I mean, I, I I'm cashing you out on, on the on the on the ascending part of your career. You're, never, you're not going to talk to me. You're not going to talk to me in six months. You know? <laughs> no, please. I'll, I'm very good at remembering. Like the, part of what comes with spite is also the good side of it is you remember those who didn't uh, give you the short shafts. The people who who showed some confidence or some niceness when you were on the way up. Uh, so so no, I I, I have like a part of my brain has all the good names and the good people to remember. <laughs> I love it, man. Um, so, you know, again, going back to like the little bits and pieces of success, like that kind of like drew you in. There was like a video of yours, which I saw on YouTube where like you're wearing like a Louis CK, uh, like right. costume. <laughs> um, and that video, I think went berserk, right? Like did that video get yeah. like views of views? Was that it what got, it did? That, that was, that was, there was to take it back a little bit in 2012, I formed a group with some other comedians who are also lawyers and it was a group called comedians at law. And I have to say until it sort of ended, I actually really liked it because it was fun to be a comedian, but almost in a band environment. Like in other words, you were going to do shows at clubs, four of you. It wasn't just me alone sitting in the, like it was, it had, that's, you know, I'm sure musicians will talk about how being in a band is 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 fun until until it's not. It's fun because um, it's like a team. You get you get to experience something as a team. And towards the end of that year, we had done some gigs. And if if we'd stayed together, it might have really blown up. We might have. But 
I pulled the diva card a little bit where I felt like sketches I was writing, they didn't want to give individual credit. They all wanted this collective credit. And I was like, I'm not asking for more money, but you know, if this does fail, I'd like to showcase my specific work, not just, hey, everybody did this. So I left and a month later, I made the Louis CK video, my first video on my own, got a, like 400,000 hits, but became very big in comedy because at that point, Louis CK was the undisputed king, cover right. of Rolling Stone. This was not scandal tarnished Louis CK. And I got, if you even look at the video now, you'll see most comments are like, this is incredible, this is hilarious. But a lot, there were, you know, a third of the comments were like, F you, you hater. And that was sort of the point I was trying to drive home, which is comedians in general love to critique the world. They love to say, eh, nothing sacred, nothing sacred. And I was saying, well, if nothing's sacred, then certainly the comedy king, who's a celebrity now, not just some local guy who I'm picking on, he's a, he's a full-blown A-list Hollywood celebrity. He's got to be fair game too. And for a lot of comedy fans, it has this different vibe. It's, it's, it's personal, like you're a comedian, or if, if you are a comedian, it's very personal when people attack comedy. But I go, you can't say I'm allowed to attack your religion or your disability or mock, I shouldn't say attack, but I'm, everything's fair game. But if you mock a comedian that's beloved, all of a sudden it's like, no, this guy's just a hater. No, it can't be that way. So that was kind of the point and it was sort of proven. But that was my first, that was, I was, you know, I was down in the dumps uh, a little bit when I posted that. Um, but I really believe, I knew it was funny. And I even said, I said, the makeup's got to be really good. We've got to nail this because there's going to be people who hate on it. And if it sucks, you give an opening for people to critique you on the merits while really not caring about the merits. They just want to hate on you. But if the, if the merits are tight, then they look like haters if they, if they insult you. But if, if your makeup sucks or the impression isn't good, that you give them an opening. It's like Elliot Spitzer. If you're going to go after Wall Street, you can't be sleeping with hookers because they'll find that out about you and attack you there. You've got to be perfect because they're going to attack you anyway. But if you give them a big opening, you're done. It's over. So, uh, yes, that's my career. I'm, I, am, I am the non-hooker Elliot Spitzer of comedy. Uh, <laughs> so, but that was a big deal for me. And I had a couple meetings with managers that went nowhere that year. I, I came out with this, obviously a self-produced album later that year, which is my, one of my two favorites and probably my favorite album. It's called Keep My Enemies Closer. But that year I was in such a funk and yet I produced two of the best things I've ever produced in comedy. And it's, you have to sometimes not do that predictable artist thing where you say, well, I guess, you know what? Tragedy and like sadness and depression, I guess that's what it takes. It's a coincidence because I've made good art when not bummed, when not depressed. I will say it seemed to flow out of me a lot faster when I was in a bad place. The same way I started doing comedy in general when I was depressed. That's, I, just, I, didn't, I just started doing it then. And I think sometimes your mind is a little more active in a certain way or introspective or thoughtful when you're moping, when maybe yourself, you're thinking about yourself a lot, I think can be a bad thing. It can make you kind of bummed, but it's also gets the, the, the brain going. But I think I've hit a good, a better place now where the stuff I, I make is not, doesn't require me to be in a particularly bad mood or a, 
bad place. Um, I think maybe that's just from years and years of doing it. You just sort of the tools and the skills are, are sharper and you don't have to maybe go through things necessarily to come up with good content. Yeah, and there's also endless endless material for you to for you to pick from. You know, every day there's something. There is. Do Although now I'd like it'd be nice if if life could get for many many reasons if life could get back to normal because I do find myself sometimes staring at the computer going, think of something that isn't in the news right now. But the problem is I'm having very. I mean, I've written a new hour that I'm ready to do either as an album or a special um, when life is back to normal and I can record, but you kind of think to yourself, you're like, well, what do I do? I'm not having life experiences really. You know, I've, I, my life is like many people it's become grocery store, stay at home, talk to my family on the phone, stay home, stream some content, watch the news, Trump everywhere all the time. And it's like, you kind of, it'd be nice for life to resume so that other things can, can just, you know, emerge and stir thoughts yeah yeah so i saw patients this morning in my new york city office and um like you know always you know sometimes i see patients like once a year they're just coming to get their skin checked you know like a skin sure. cancer screen and but, but i've been in practice now there for 11 years so i've been i've had like relationships with these people with these my patients at this mm-hmm. point and interesting like I had, like three or four conversations i had today like all the patients said the exact same thing they're like well you know it's kind of like groundhog's day you know, like the kind of, you know, what, what, you, what you described. So it's true. You kind of do need, we all need some more flavor in our life. I think we've kind of maxed out how much we can squeeze out of like Netflix and just chilling at home. And initially it was actually a really nice thing, you know, and I talked right. about, <laughs> I'm like, I've never spent so much time at home. I've never spent so much time with my kids. I've, we got another dog. Like, you know, I started playing guitar more, you know, all of those like wonderful things about having time on my hands. But then now it gets to a point where you're almost uninspired. Like, you know, it's like you, you, you need life experiences to you know reignite inspiration you know whether yeah whatever it is that you do even like professionally or creatively you know whatever it is you know that's what's neat we're all i think at our absolutely you know the extreme of literally squeezing every ounce of juice for like motivation (laughs) inspiration you know so yeah it's the world is in 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 a weird place and i think all humans are suffering right now yeah no, I remember, I remember just the first time when things were barely opening up in, in Jersey where I'm at and the Starbucks had obviously been closed for months or it was just doing drive through for months. I don't have a car. I was just, I was like, I guess I'm not going there to read ever again. But uh, when I could walk in there and it was all just pick up and, and go, but it was even that, even just walking into my local coffee shop that wasn't my apartment or a supermarket, I was just like, oh, that's right. Like this, it, it just, it was almost like a, you're hit like in a movie where you're hit by a flashback of like, Oh, this I've been here before. <laughs> and it felt, you know, it's, it's, but we are not to get to, not to get serious, but like, I just think as a country, there's plenty of conscientious people. I think the conscientious people outnumber the selfish people or the defiant people, but you don't need, uh, you need 99.9% compliance, 80% compliance means we're effed for a while. (laughs) You know, even though that's, oh, look at the majority and most people are doing what they do, but you have entire states where it becomes, my my girlfriend's sister, when mask wearing was the thing, she's in Texas and you had people uh, looking at them funny. 
like in other words, a mask had become, oh, you wear a mask. Whereas when I'm out in Jersey it's, or in, this, in New York City, the few times I've gone in, it's, they're everywhere. It's just, yeah, that's, that's what you have to do. It's not, a, it's not even a choice. It's like, this is the safety measure and it works. It works in the aggregate. And that's what we have to be about. And we're, we've really reached this sort of individualism farce at this point where it's like, you can't tell me anything because then you're taking away freedom. It's like, I mean, (laughs) common sense. It's not, you know, it's not a a registry that you have to, but anyway, sorry, I I digress in a big way. (laughs) Interestingly, like in New York, it's almost the opposite. Like if you're not wearing your mask, if you're walking, because I'm in the city all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. a week and, you know, it's just a reflexive, like you just wear your mask. And if you're not, if you see someone without a mask, you're like, oh shit, like, you know, they're, they're not wearing a mask, you know, it's almost like, this right. reverse, whereas like you're saying, like in Texas, it's the opposite. Oh, look at that person wearing a mask, you know, they're, you know, they're suckers or whatever, whatever it is, you know, but which is terrible. We should be wearing masks since February. I've been saying that, you know. And we- Trump, uh, not, you know, I don't want to get, I'm not going to get too political, although anybody who's watched any of my content can probably guess where I am. But to me, it's, he always uses that Fauci line of he said no masks, but of course Fauci was saying that because there was there were he wanted the masks for the the the, the medical personnel. It wasn't that he was saying masks suck. <laughs> he was like, we have limited masks. Doctors and healthcare workers and nursing home attendants should be getting masks right now. <laughs> and it's been manipulated into this. Well, who knows? He said no masks, and it's it's very unfortunate because it really is. I remember. When they were talking about wearing masks, I had a joke where I said, of course, I blow up as a comedian, clubs shut down. I get compliments on my teeth, on my YouTube videos. Now they're telling me to put a mask over my mouth. I can't win. And I was like bummed about mask wearing just because I was like, I don't want to wear a mask. It's annoying. Now you're a doctor. It's, 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 it's a different experience for you. But I'm going, after like a week of wearing a mask, I'm like, oh, it's, not, it's like annoying, but it's really not. It's not you get used to it. We adapt. And yeah, I look forward to going places without a mask, but right now it really isn't that intrusive. The first week it was like, Oh, this sucks. And then it's like, Oh, I put a mask on it. Like my face is now used to having a mask and stop it. And we get to this. Apparently my dog who's, who's originally from Kentucky is she's an (laughs) anti-masker. She's voting for Mitch McConnell. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's really not that big a deal unless you make it, you have to want to make it a big deal now to not do it. Cause it really, it's just, I go to check the mail. I put them It's like, it's an extra three seconds. And I just wear my glasses a little bit less so they don't get, you know, sometimes they get fogged up. That's it. That's, that's how my life has been changed by masks. <laughs> life is different in many other ways, but masks are really an insignificant change at this point. I'm with you, man. Um, so I just want to kind of get into some of the nuts and bolts of, of your content model. Absolutely. So, so you're, you know, you're someone who produces a lot of content. I create a lot of content. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into producing content that's unseen, you know. And, you know, you're posting. I think you're basically posting to Instagram every day, right? Or multiple times a day. Yeah. If it's not a video, it'll be something from our podcast. Just So there's usually probably like six posts a week, I'd say. So what is your model? Like where, where, how much are you posting to each platform? Like, say, what's your weekly schedule? Sure. Um, I guess TikTok, I've been trying to do one a day now. Just I've been like, 
I've neglected TikTok, but I finally had one post that got like 34,000 views. And that, that finally got me from, you know, 230 followers to 1100, which is still in the world of TikTok, it's nothing, but there's some action finally happening on that platform. But Twitter, Twitter is the place for, you know, since I don't have Facebook, it's basically the place where here's a serious post, here's a video, here's a couple of jokes, here's a stand-up clip. For me, I probably, I got to be posting five or six times a day minimum on Twitter. Um, I try to space them out so they don't crowd out each other because, you know, like anybody else, but especially me, I want people to go to the content. I want them to see it um, and share it. So, so are these I'd say I probably... Or oh, sorry, man. Are these embedded in Twitter like your videos or are they links off to other platforms? It's both because obviously if you're doing Twitter, just like Facebook, they want you to directly upload embed. Um, but then I'll do, you know, I try to tell people without being too needy. Hey, you know, you can also watch them on YouTube for free, but they're monetized. It's just one extra click. And then you, you know, that gets me 10 cents or whatever. Um, Cause if you just upload the YouTube, Hey, this got seen by 3,000 people. The embedded video, this got seen by 110,000 people. So they incentivize you to do it one way and you're just trying to game the system so that you can make something off of it. Um, like I said, Instagram is usually a post a day, but Twitter is, is now my all-purpose platform. Um, but I'm, what I try to do is at least once a week post a stand-up clip, which are obviously from the last couple of years, not this year. Just because all I need is from those 144,000 people on Twitter, which sounds like a, Je like a Jehovah's Witness. Like, I guess my, my account is now a Jehovah's Witness uh, number. But the sharing, like, like I want some chunk of those people to become stand-up fans. I know it's not going to be all. I know the 70-year-old progressive mom of three from Montana uh, may not be the biggest stand-up comedy fan. She may just like the Trump videos, and that's great. Anything that brings people to any of my comedy is welcome. But I want to try and turn like a fourth of those people into stand-up fans because then that's still 45,000? 45, I don't know. what you know. 35,000, there it is. 35,000 of those people. Well, I had 4,000 fans a year ago. So if I've multiplied my stand-up fans by seven, that, that will have currency. Just like the fact that I simply have those numbers on social media has currency to get booked, but that'll get you booked one time. And I know I have the stand-up. Nobody ever looks at, watches my set and goes, oh, he's not that good. It becomes a matter of if I want a headline consistently, am I selling tickets? So it's, a, it's, it's, it's still a great trying now to get the chance to shine and then to sell the tickets. And then you're in a better place. You finally reach a place where maybe you can breathe and relax and sort of focus on just trying to make another album, another special. Uh, you know, but, but for now, it's still in this, I'm at a place that I didn't think I'd get to. I'd sort of given up on getting to this place, but I'm not at the destination yet. I'm just at a much better place to reach my destination. So this is the biggest, as I said, of all those little moments that keep you going. This was a big moment, not a little moment. I know that, but it, it's not the finish line either. So, of course. yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you post everything yourself? Are you personally doing it? Yeah, I, I do it myself. Um, the only thing is like a lot of my videos don't have any editing. 
Um, but some of my sketch videos that I've put up, almost all my sketch videos, not all, but most, I have like an editor who just uh, helps me put together. Because that's the one thing I'm not, I don't have the time or the energy to like learn how to become an expert. Of course, it would be great skills to have, but that's the one thing I'm probably never going to get good at is, is like the hot, the editing, even no matter how easy they make it. TikTok is as easy as it. TikTok is it. Yeah. Anything beyond TikTok editing, I'm like, I will pay somebody to do that. That's just not my time to learn that is not there, let alone to be like, okay, I did a video. Now let me spend another six hours piecing it together. Like that's, that's for someone else to do. So that's the only, only part of this operation that I don't do is if you see a, a video with any kind of good graphics or editing, it's most certainly not me that did that. <laughs> yeah, same here. I mean, I have a full-time videographer on my staff who kind of chops up the content, like all these little podcast posts and, and stuff. Um, right. I post everything on my own too, which I mean, the reason why I'm bringing all of that up is it does take a lot of time. You know, it really is like, you know, my wife yeah. is giving me shit for some, I am literally always on my phone because I'm either posting something I'm responding. <laughs> I'm responding to like, you know, I respond to every one personally, you know, any comments that I get or on YouTube, any yep. comments, I respond to each and every one of those personally, you know, I'm on this community platform. Where well, that's, can... There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground with social media either. Either you're fully engaged and you're building or you're not engaging unless you have a nice person like you that's patiently waits for a, a response from me many months later. A lot of people give up on you if they're like, oh, I guess he's not, you know, so you can either build or lose, but there's really very little room to be stagnant or to, to cruise, you know, to be on cruise control when it comes to this stuff, which is, which is why it's can be a little, like time consuming. Cause you, you sort of think I kind of have to do this. See, my, my hope is, and I, and I really think this is going to be a reality is, you know, like when you have like your Netflix special or, you know, whatever huge HBO, or whatever huge platform you're on, um, you know, whenever that may be in the next fingers few crossed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I think it's going to happen. I mean, you basically speak, you, I, I like to speak things into existence. I, you know, I know that's going to happen. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> but, I like to, I, I like to doubt the metaverse. <laughs> you know what I think is amazing. I, what I really want people to, if they ever go back and see this, I want them to see like how much dedication it and, and literally years of persevering, being relentless, getting beaten down, having little tastes of success, but then getting the shit beat out of you, going to like dark places, then coming back and you still like being true to your craft and you have a passion for it, how long it takes to make it. I mean, they're really no one. And, and I don't care who you say is like, you know, there's no one that hasn't grinded it out. That's achieved like a tremendous amount of success. And this is all while having a career. Right. Like, you know, you basically were in professional school to be an attorney, you were still working as an attorney and like, you know, you're doing all this stuff on the side. I think a, that just speaks to how passionate you are about it. I mean, and you know, you're hilarious. And you know, I think the, oh, you. I was grateful that you're putting all that stuff out into the world. But like one day it'll be like, you know, wow, I grinded for 20 years to get to this point where I am. And someone like yourself is not gonna say, okay, now I'm done. There'll be bigger things that you wanna do when you get there just cause you've been right. grinding at it for so long. You get there and say, okay, I'm just gonna chill out now. Like you're gonna, raise the bar um but yeah I, I love it like i just think i think that's what so that's why i love this format because i don't think anyone really gets to see that your story really like oh the guy's just making right. some videos and he's just posting them and just you know he just went viral no, it doesn't work like that there was like 
15 years of hustle before that first Trump video came out, you know? Right. And, and what I say to people is a lot of people say to me and they, and, and most of them are being nice about it. So I don't snap at them, but they're like, what are you going to do when, when Trump's out of office? And I go, uh, breathe a sigh of relief and hopefully get back to what I was doing for the preceding 15 years, which is being a really good standup, but now with some fans who, and if you like, it's like, if you like funny voice, you might not be a fan of mine, but if you like what a lot of people like, which is the creativity, the dialogue, the, the little jokes, the writing of it. Well, that that's just my, that's me, the comedian talking through that voice. That's not, that's not just, oh, he talks, he repeats Trump's phrases. It's like, no, I create within that. Yeah. So if you like that, you know, you'll, you, you very well might like a lot of other things I do in the humor space, if I can call it that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's it is a long grind, and I think we get to the point um, where, in comedy, you don't see a lot of people in my position because a lot of the time people fade away. They either make it, they get a break, or but I've been a middle act, which is going to be like I think middleman is going to be the title of my you know either pilot or autobiography. You don't see people being the middle act for like eleven years. You might sometimes, but like the ones with aspirations of making it to the next level, usually it's just like, oh, it's a hobby or, oh, I quit because it was, you know, I did it for a few years. I featured for a few years and then that was it. And I just said, I know I've got, I've got it. I'm sitting here with what it takes. I can't abandon that yet. It, 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 people always say, you know, oh, you, you're going to make it. And I go, I believe I hit a point around 2013 where I really said, okay, I know I'm good, but 2013 was the year between the Louis C.K. video and that album, um, where I felt like, oh, I just hit another level. Like I, creatively, not career-wise, but like I am now, this is, I'm ready. Now I'm ready for whatever the next step is to be a headliner. It still hasn't happened, but I've been ready for seven years and it would have felt weird abandoning that. That's what I didn't abandon. I said, I have no faith in the business even with all my fame, et cetera, right now, the, the next, I don't have a manager. I don't have an agent and all, none have contacted me. So I sit there going, I still don't have any reason to have faith in the business, but the people have now seen me more and more people have now seen what I can do. And the response has been what I thought it would be, which is this guy's hilarious. We want to see him. So now I have to just wait for that next level where I can get that tour and that special and I have no doubt I will deliver. Not because I'm, I do think I'm a, I'm a gifted comedian, but it, at this point, it's, it's money in the bank. I've been doing it 17 years, seven or eight years at a high level of, of quality. So that's, that's not really a question of, oh, will he, will he be good? It's just a matter of, will I get now that platform, that chance? And I'm too close now any thoughts I had of, of, of leaving are gone because it's like, it'll take another 10 years for them to beat this out of me. So maybe when I'm 50, if it still hasn't happened, I'll be at another crossroads and I'll go, you know what? 27 years of my life is uh, good enough. I'm six, seven. I probably only have five years left at this height. I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy my fifties until, uh, until it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> are you six, seven? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm going to scare the crap out of people that come to live shows because all they've seen is like, you know, polo shirt up 
and then they're gonna be like, "Where's JL?" And they're gonna have to like look up to the second story and be like, "Oh, there he is." Oh, that, that, yeah, <laughs> totally. I'm gonna be shocked when I see you. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I get just a couple things that you touched on. Well, I was, you actually took one of the questions uh, that I was about to ask you to see if someone had reached out to you in terms of like management or agents and stuff. Um, but you know, the interesting thing now is, do you, are you like a Gary? Do you follow Gary V at all on social media? Gary Vaynerchuk, you familiar with him? Gary V. Yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's like a social media digital marketing guy. Oh, no, no. He's very big on Instagram, but what are like okay. his sort of like uh, points in a lot of the stuff that he's, you know, puts out there is, you know, now just because of where we are in terms of social media and so much access to exposure, it's really like, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's one's own responsibility to generate the buzz around themselves and to post because it's, there's so much access to people now. So, you know, like how your videos are. Oh, sure. It's almost like you don't need a manager or an agent who's going to, you know, blow you up. You could blow yourself up now, which you are. I mean, you're basically, you're a perfect example. No, I got, I got a rib, I got a rib removed for that exact purpose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little vulgar humor for the podcast fans. Now, well, no, what you're saying is true because here's, I'll give you one example. I had an album come out in May. It was the best of coincidences. It was a Trump album. I recorded it with a friend. He produced it. And that was, I wasn't going to do the album. And I just decided, you know what? Let's do it as like a wrap up of the Trump presidency, which we assume will only be one term. We record it in late January in his studio, his basement studio. Okay. I go, that was fun. Good job. This will, you know, sell 52 copies and It'll just be a nice little uh, uh, feather in my cap or whatever. Well, March happens and April, I continue to grow. So the album is coming out May 1st, totally just not by any plan. But now not only is it me with a bigger fan base, it's a Trump album. You know, like it's, it's exactly what people have been liking from me. It was perfect. So it sells really well. And I say, okay, this is a weird year. There's not as much content competing. What if I say the opposite? I say, what if we get a PR, a publicist, and we make like a dark horse Grammy campaign for comedy album? This might be the only time my name is never going to be. It, I might get bigger, but I'm never going to be as proportionally bigger as I am this year when so much is shut down. When people are going to social media for their entertainment. So I hire publicists, kind of a, a low level publicist, but like, you know, they, they're experienced. They, and they give me assurances. We're going to do this, this, and this. They basically got me next to nothing in three months. What I got without them during the same time and before Mark Maron's podcast, the Washington post, the LA times, that's just from people liking me on Twitter and Instagram and looking at my comedy. So I agree in terms of, I don't think I need a manager to help me get recognition, but I do need an agent for the business and the, the direct connections to put together a tour to get me booked at casinos and clubs as a headliner instead of just the blind email. Now I've worked many clubs, so I can contact the 20 clubs I've worked and ask them and maybe half of them, maybe more will say, sure, we'll give you two days to headline, boom, 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 you know, when things are okay. But that's not good enough anymore for me. Like, like, it's not, I need what an agent can provide. You know, I'd love to do it all by myself. So managing, I've managed my own career. 
and my publicity, even with the publicist example, I've gotten tons of great A-list press just by existing and putting out content, not even, you know, they're contacting me, but the career step, you know, I do need that middleman. I do need those connections. And that, because I want to put together a tour, I want to get a special with um, Showtime, HBO, whoever, you know, Netflix, the Holy Grail, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. You know what I mean? That's like saying, I, I'd like to win the lottery. Um, who wouldn't, but Netflix is just so big and, and selective and have their own criteria that, you know, yes, I would take that, but I, you know, I feel like that's, that's more, that's total luck. I think I could make a pitch to other places with a little more, uh, a little better chance, but who knows? Are you, are you still working with the publicist or are they out of the picture at this point? Um, when does this episode go uh, up? Next week. Uh, that, that I'm, I, I think I'm a free agent. <laughs> Let's just say the three months are up in like five days. <laughs> and I, I harbor no ill will, but it would, it just hasn't been fruitful. It, it, you know, if I'm getting myself a minus coverage, you know what I mean? If I can get myself a minus coverage by just existing, the threshold is an A or above. Like it certainly isn't B minus. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want to get worse, more burdensome opportunities. Um, as an example, and I mean, you have a, you have a huge following on, on social media, but if I told you, Hey, I got Mark Marin's podcast. And then somebody who I'm paying money to each month says, I got you Dr. Mudgill's podcast. That's nice. And I'll do it. But it's like, that's not bang for the buck. No effect. You know what I mean? In terms of if I'm getting, I want you to say for money, if I'm doing Mark Marin, then I want to do Joe Rogan. If I'm pet, you know what I mean? I only mean that in terms of proportional. I've done all sorts of shows. I'm happy to be here. I'm just saying as a purely as an example, comparing to Mark Marin, this, you know, if I'm paying you, I expect above Mark Marin, not parallel or a little below. So yeah, that's what I've, that's what it feels like I've gotten. So yeah, I, I sorry. Mean, uh, yeah, I, so I've worked with publicists before and I think it's just a fucking racket. You know, like that's the same exact <laughs> that you, I've, what I've been able to do for myself, advocating for myself is like a million times better than anything any publicist has got me. And, you know, they promise you the world. And I, I made the mistake of I had a publicist who was, you know, initially I, did, I, I when I first started, I didn't know who, who I was. I mean, I'm a successful dermatologist in New York City. I don't know, like the top doctor list type of thing. But in terms of like, just like, right. you know, I, I know who this guy is. I didn't really have any any particular notoriety. So I hired a publicist who got me in a bunch of magazines. So I was in like Cosmo and Vogue and like whatever, all the magazines, you know, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then I was like, okay, well, mm -hmm. now, you know, I want I want to get on TV. So I got I got another publicist yeah. more to who I was on CBS and, you know, Fox and shit like that. And then I was like, well, I want to do that. Oh, well, sounds good so far. <laughs> one was like inter like several thousands more per month and then i finally had one that right. was like well i want to do this regularly so then i was like okay cool so if i pay some more money then like you know then i'll get a better shit and that ended up being my worst publicist i got nothing and i was like locked into a uh. six month contract which was like and it would drive me nuts and i was and every time i'd get the bill like she'd bill me for like the first month and the last month and I'd have to pay for the next month at the beginning of the last month. So like within the first month 
I was like $15,000 or $18,000 in. I was like, I was like, I've already paid you like whatever it is, some crazy amount of money, like $15,000. And yeah. I haven't even done shit yet. I was like, this seems crazy to me. So and then I was saying that the publicist I just spoke to, I had a conversation with a publicist. And the reason I trust her is because she basically told me I can't help you right now. And I said, there, now I actually, maybe this is just like dating where you like want the person who tells you no, but that was, I thought she was basically pitching me like, when you have something to pitch specifically, I will work with you. And that actually will stay in my mind because I go, okay, but this is somebody who seems to be, you know, a little more surgically precise in their pitch in what they plan on doing, which makes me go, oh, you know, just like anything, specificity makes it feel more real. If you just tell me we've got somebody who's worked here and they got all the connections. I'm now I know that's you're you're being a publicist to me, not for me. <laughs> you're just selling me on you. And that makes me think, I don't know if you're gonna do anything for me. So yeah, sorry. I, I that's the right way to approach it. Like if you have a book or an album or something like that. Yeah, it makes a lot more right. sense to have someone on board. Um all right, listen, man, I could I could talk to you forever, man. But uh, I don't I don't want to keep you <laughs> I don't want to keep you here all day you know i mean really just kind of sort of for me you know why i think this is was just so awesome getting to know you better was like you know again i love like the behind the scenes stuff and like all the grind mm -hmm. that goes in behind the scenes and i mean you have like a gajillion fans you know and, and everyone's really really loving your stuff and i think for a lot of folks it's easy to say oh wow like, you know this was like easy fodder just like trump is like you know saying stupid shit all the time and it's like really easy to do parodies and stuff of him and then you just kind of blew up out of nowhere like you're a lawyer who just kind of blew up out of nowhere and the, right. and, the, and the truth is that there's so much um there's so much grooming of your talent like to be able to seize on this moment you know all the impressions that you've done through the years it really enabled you you know all that hard work enabled you to sort of capitalize on this really you really made lemonade out of this shitty situation we were all in and you know again and added a lot of levity to a really dark time in a lot of people's lives you know i mean the last few months six months have been shitty for most people you know unless you're jeff bezos and you know all of the other <laughs> who, are, who are killing it but um you know for all of us at home just being able to kind of circulate your videos and text the links to your videos to each other in our various circles you know it's really just provided so much value but i think you were able to provide so much value because of the rich foundation strong foundation that you built you know really honing your comedy skills for like almost two decades man yeah well thank you. that's a that's a beautiful way of summarizing it and now my pitch to my fans is hey remember how grateful you were during covid well now i'm on tour so it's time for you to sh now it's time for payback <laughs> that was that was nine hours of free content during the apocalypse so you can pay 20 bucks and buy two drinks <laughs> We can't wait to. I mean, I personally can't wait to do that, man. I'll definitely gonna be coming down with the crew when you roll through New York, man. No doubt. Awesome. And uh, yeah, no, maybe I maybe now I can afford to move back to New York. How about that? <laughs> where, where in Jersey are you, man? Uh, Bloomfield. It's very nice. It's near Montclair. Uh, my brother lives in Montclair, and my girlfriend's brother's family is is very close to us as well. So it was a good location, and it was. You know, I feel like a year from now when more people maybe are leaving the city or trying to figure out their lives in a different way, this is probably the kind of up and coming neighborhood that will then be like, oh, your rent's going way up because now there's more demand for places that are 30 minutes outside of the city that are affordable. Um, but I'm, you know, I lived in a studio in Midtown for 11 and a half years. 
really liked it, liked the centrality of the location, was very depressed leaving. Um, and then all of a sudden this hit and it was another silver lining to something I thought was negative. I go, oh, I have a big two bedroom that's not in midtown Manhattan. I'm not in the epicenter of anything and I have a lot more space. I think I would have gone crazy, I'm sure, in a studio in midtown, like I can't go anywhere. I just have to order seamless and stay in my one room apartment. It would have been, uh, this has already been tough as I'm sure it's been tough for so many people, but that would have been uh, pretty excruciating, I think by now. <laughs> uh, totally, man. I mean, New York, I don't know if you were in New York at all during like the height of the pandemic, but. No, just, just recently, like last month was my first time back five months. Yeah, it was, it was nuts, man. Um, if you could just tell folks where, you know, they can find you, man. You, oh, you know, sure. Various platforms. Um, the, one of the easier ways is obviously jlcomedy.com. That'll just take you to my website, which has social media links, blog, album, you know, album links, all that stuff. If you just remember one thing, that'll take you to everywhere you want to go. Um, but other than that, um, Trump Pod, since you have a big Instagram following, uh, um, Trump Pod, T-R-U-M-P-P-O-D on Instagram where you can just, you know, see the videos. I think I posted a video of my dog for the first time. So like, I think I may take over that account when the, when Trump is over or when the show is over and transition, you know, cultivate those fans into like more of my stuff. Um, Twitter, JL Covan, J-L-C-A-U-V-I-N. Um, I think that's it. Same thing on TikTok. So wherever people choose to follow. So actually, I, I'm, I'm over half a million on TikTok. So I, I, I would just want to put- What's your ticket? Oh, do you, so you have, do you have a blue check mark? Like yeah. on, like on Instagram? Yeah. Uh, funny thing. People were telling me, Oh, you got to get verified on Twitter. Now they, and my, my bad luck never goes away. It was like, they ended the verification program like a week before I went to get verified because they hacked a bunch of verified accounts. Oh, um, this was like a few months ago, I think. So I was just like, of course I can't even get the, the check. Yeah, mark. It'll, 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 um, but what's your, what's your TikTok? Yeah. It's JL Covan, also J L C A U V I N. Covan. So, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you have an impressive following on on multiple platforms, so you're not you're no slouch. No. And you're a friggin' doctor, so look at that. I'm working hard, man. I'm working hard. I'm trying. I'm trying to get my way yeah. out. That's what that's what that's what this is all about. <laughs> hey, man. Thanks so much, JL. I really appreciate you, man. And I, I think. Thank you very much. This is a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your patience waiting for my response. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.